October 30, 1605. While resting comfortably in his royal mansion, Lord Montagle was delivered an anonymous letter late in the evening. Upon unfolding and reading the document, he went awash with fear and suspicion. This ominous letter, one that outlined a potential terrorist attack upon the British Parliament, left the statesman reeling in panic. Is this real? Who would send this to me? And why was it being leaked? So after scanning the message rather quickly the first time, he sat down, poured himself a cup of tea, and more studiously tried to analyze the mysterious text. It read as follows. Quote, My lord, out of the love I have for some of your friends, I want to make sure that you are safe. Because of this, I would advise you not to attend this sitting of Parliament, because God and man have agreed to punish the wickedness of this time. Do not think that this is a joke. Go to your estate in the country where you will be safe, because although there is no sign of any problem yet, this Parliament will receive a terrible blow, but they will not see who it is that hurts them. This advice should not be ignored, as it may do you some good, and it can do you no harm because the danger will have passed as soon as you have burned this letter. I hope God grants you the grace to make good use of it and that he protects you. Welcome to Smoke-Filled Rooms, a political true crime podcast exploring history's most infamous governments, parties, leaders, policies, and discontents. Hosted by Gregory Zink. Halloween bonus episode. Guy Fawkes and the Gunpowder Plot. Happy Halloween, everyone, and welcome back to the Smoke-Filled Rooms podcast. In the Zink household, Halloween is a very special day. We usually spend the latter half of every October preparing costumes, carving jack-o'-lanterns, decorating the house, and making our annual pilgrimage to a local farm that hosts a cornfield maze, haunted house, and wagon rides. So considering the time of year and the specialness that I attach to this occasion, I thought I would do a snack-sized Halloween episode for my loyal listeners. A tale that involves terrorism, sectarian grievances, a brutal execution, and one of the most infamous pieces of political iconography of all time. The item in question, which is quite popular on All Hallows' Eve, is the pale-faced but giant goateed grin imprinted on plastic masks the world over of Guy Fox. Although infamous in his own historical right, the image of Fox's rosy-cheeked, confident, and devilish smile was popularized as a symbol of anarchical defiance in the graphic novel series V is for Vendetta. And then, 16 years later, in 2005, Warner Brothers released the film adaptation of this comic series to much success and fanfare. This sent the Fox symbology into the stratosphere and made it one of the leading costumes not only for Halloween, but also for political protests worldwide to this very day. And of course, we cannot forget about the online hacker group Anonymous. These cyber radicals espouse Fox's likeness whenever they post videos or threats on the internet. Drawing from the anti-state radicalism of Fox and the gunpowder plot, Anonymous coordinates disparate factions of its adherents 
to cyber-attack government institutions, corporations, and organized religions. But the costume and legacy of Fox and the gunpowder plot was celebrated way before any American pop culture or modern reinterpretation had touched it. Indeed, Guy Fawkes Day, otherwise known as Bonfire Night, is a British observance occurring annually on November 5th. Britannica.com describes the occasion as, quote, being celebrated in the United Kingdom and in a number of countries that were formerly part of the British Empire. It includes parades, fireworks, bonfires, and food. In addition, straw effigies of fox are tossed onto the bonfire, as are, in most recent years in some places, those of contemporary political figures. Traditionally, children carried these effigies, called guys, through the streets in the days leading up to Guy Fox Day and asked passers-by for a penny for the guy, often reciting rhymes associated with the occasion, the best known of which dates from the 18th century. Here is an example of such a rhyme. Remember, remember the 5th of November, gunpowder treason and plot. We see no reason why gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. Britannica continues its explanation with, Fireworks, a major component of most Guy Fawkes Day celebrations, represents the explosives that were never used by the plotters. Guards perform an annual search of the Parliament building to check for potential arsonists, although it is more ceremonial than serious. End quote. So, far from being what I assume most people would associate with the Fox symbolism, British people actively celebrate his demise in an act of status solidarity. Revelers during this day are actually commemorating the execution of an anti-crown terrorist, as opposed to memorializing his attempt at mass murder. In fact, one of my son's friends a few years ago showed up to my house on Halloween Day ready to trick-or-treat with a Guy Fawkes costume on. When I asked him what he was, he said, I'm V from the Vendetta movie. And after asking if he knew who the mask was based on, he simply shrugged his shoulders and said, I just watched the movie and I thought it was cool. So with that in mind, let's get into the story and learn what really happened. Religious tensions were running at a fever pitch in the year of 1605, when Lord Montagle received the mysterious letter that I read at the top of the episode. While sent sometime in late October, Lord Montagle, as well as his comrades and co-workers in politics and royalty, intended to patronize the opening of Parliament a few days later on November 5th. But as we learned, the anonymous letter warned of an imminent terrorist attack upon the British political institution. The mysterious communication also urged Montagle to burn the letter after having read it. But Montagle, who we have to remember was a practicing Catholic, did not cooperate with these wishes. He was first and foremost an agent of the state and instead forwarded the letter to Robert Cecil, who was chief minister of King James I. For at this point in history, which I will briefly get into, Many English Protestants feared that a Catholic minority insurrection would rear its ugly head sooner or later. With the movement wanting to install its own religious leader that would be at the behest of the Pope in Rome. And this mysterious handwritten message 
seemed to confirm the suspicion. The letter made its way up the chain of command until it reached the throne of King James. It's reported that he was initially skeptical as to the authenticity of the letter, but he still insisted on a thorough search of all political buildings, with special emphasis being placed on the Palace of Westminster, and this is where Parliament is held. On November 4th, the Earl of Suffolk was charged with a sweep of the palace and he initially reported no substantial cause for concern. But he did make note of a privately rented basement storage center that contained what seemed to be an absurd amount of firewood. Unhappy with the lack of findings and interested in the side note by Suffolk, Sir Thomas Nivet made a point to research the premises. Making the exact same firewood observation, Nivet also noticed a strange man was found guarding the room in question. And this guy wasn't dressed like their typical watchman. This dude was wearing shabby boots with spurs and a black cloak. The investigator then intuited that this was an ideal wardrobe for someone wanting to make a nighttime horseback escape. Sure enough, after moving the obscene pile of firewood, Nivet found 36 barrels of gunpowder. And the man guarding the room proved to be dodgy and uncooperative allegedly giving the name John Johnson as his handle and was found to have long fuses hidden amongst his clothes. So far, not shaping up to be the brightest of terrorists in the history of political crime. I know if I was to do something like this, I wouldn't be hanging around the bomb all day wearing what amounts to a ski mask and holding evidence on my person. And then when asked what my name was, say, uh, Greg, Greg McGregor. But needless to say, the suspect was arrested by Sir Nivet and after many brutal rounds of medieval torture, admitted he was in actuality Guy Fox from Yorkshire. He also spilled the beans on his team's goal of blowing up Parliament to decapitate the government and then set up a Roman Catholic regime in its wake. Even noting that King James I's daughter, Elizabeth, who would not be in attendance that day, was to be installed as its puppet dictator. The cause of this gunpowder plot was the religious strife that was engulfing Europe after the instability produced by the Reformation of the 16th century. This commonly involved Catholics and Protestants squaring off against one another for religious dominance in various nation-states. Because in this time period, the majority of countries and kingdoms in Europe enforced the idea of a national Christianity as their codified belief systems. If it was a Protestant king, then the country was Protestant, if a Catholic, then a Catholic kingdom. So in 1558, Elizabeth I took over and her royal court pitched the idea of a religious settlement, which foresaw a uniquely Protestant national church. Needless to say, English Catholics publicly rejected this proposal which led to the English Queen criminalizing Catholic baptisms, marriages, and funerals. This would generally start with monetary fines, but quickly escalated to prison sentences. Even printing or importing Catholic books became treasonous. From that time forward, agents of the government swore an oath to the Queen as the head of church and state. And this is while they were fighting the Irish Catholics up north, 
and while the looming threat of Spanish invasion hung over their heads. For Spain was rumored to have been funding Catholic insurrectionists. The Crown even subjected its people to a continuous propaganda campaign that stressed the atrocities committed in the name of the Roman Catholic religion. They were reminded ad nauseum about the 280 people burned in five years by Elizabeth's Catholic predecessor, Mary I, as well as the 1570 papal edict, which had declared Elizabeth illegitimate and encouraged her subjects to rebel against her. So after Elizabeth I's death in 1603, people wanted to believe that King James I, who had ruled Scotland as James VI, would begin a new era of peace. Making good on his pledge to seek a religious armistice, he signed the Treaty of London in 1604, which effectively ended all foreign aid by all the signatory parties to their preferred religious sects and their activities. This pacified some of the religious extremists of the time and was intended to produce a relatively calm religious scene in England, akin to a don't ask, don't tell type of deal. So long as no one makes any noise, we'll leave y'all alone. But needless to say, a lot of Catholic dissidents were not impressed and still wanted to violently overthrow the king. They argued the penalties against them remained and they had no public representation to speak of and that in lieu of their rule, they would be continuously discriminated against. One such malcontent was Robert Catsby, son of a gentry Catholic family from the English Midlands. He was the man who went on to conspire what would eventually become the gunpowder plot. Said to have a charismatic and irresistible charm, Catsby would quietly explain to listeners how the only relief to their troubles was the violent overthrow of the kingdom itself and this would be most efficiently done in a government decapitation operation that would eliminate the political hierarchy in one fell swoop. And he managed to rope in some sympathetic ears to his plan. Thomas Winter and John Wright linked up with Catesby and even went so far as to travel to the Spanish-occupied territory of Flanders to pitch their plan to government officials. The Spanish government wasn't interested though, but they did find a man who was, Guy Fox. Guy was a Catholic convert who fought alongside the Spaniards in Flanders, and being involved in the military, had an expansive knowledge of explosives. And with this, he became extremely valuable to Catsby and his burgeoning Catholic terror network. So shortly thereafter, in May of 1604, in a smoke-filled room within the Duck and Drake pub in London, England, the five conspirators met, swore an oath of loyalty to each other, and cheers the Pope over a pint of ale. They were now officially hatching a secret plot to overthrow the British government once and for all. Over the following months, they stockpiled supplies and started using their aliases. And along the way, they picked up more co-conspirators, and their ranks doubled to ten. Correspondingly to their plan, they rented out a basement storage underneath the Palace of Westminster. And over the following months, they would slowly and intermittently hide gunpowder in and among the firewood that they would bring to store. And after getting their plan in motion, three wealthy and influential men, Ambrose Rockwood, Francis Tresham, 
and Sir Evergard Digby joined their conspiracy. And this brought the total number of those involved in their terrorist plot to 13. They planned to launch their attack several times before the November operation, but circumstances never lined up completely in their column, and the secrecy of their efforts was incredibly withheld from scrutiny despite their growing ranks. That was until the Montego letter was sent. Yet historians are still not certain exactly who it was that tipped off the government. A leading suspect is Francis Tresham, one of Catsby's co-conspirators, but no conclusive evidence has ever been discovered. Needless to say, it was almost certainly not Fox who would then be foolish to hang around the crime scene after alerting the authorities. So once the aforementioned letter was sent and the search of Parliament was complete, Guy Fawkes was arrested and interned in the Tower London in the early hours of November 5, 1605. And in an act later reimagined by the Bush administration's Guantanamo Bay enhanced interrogation policy, King James issued a royal decree permitting the use of torture on Fox. And apparently, they broke him good and fast. Fox gave it all up and named the names of his fellow Catholic terrorists. The royal guards were then dispersed to round up the enemies of the crown. Catsby, Percy, and Wright were then killed in a shootout near Staffordshire, resisting arrest. The mastermind Catsby was now dead, and thus the legacy of the plot and its inspiration was forever lost to historical accounts. But it did spare him the indignity and sheer pain of having to deal with the punishments meted out to the treasonous actors. For at the time, the common penalty for treason against the crown, that is to say, being a convicted enemy of the state, wasn't just a death sentence. It was license for the sovereign to kill, humiliate, and make a grisly example of your corpse. For all the men found guilty of the gunpowder plot, were sentenced to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. And just to expand on this topic a little bit, here is the actual text of the English law that was active and on the books until 1870. Hanging, drawing, and quartering was the official death sentence for anyone convicted of high treason, and it reads as follows. Quote, that you be drawn on a hurdle to the place of execution where you shall be hanged by the neck and being alive cut down. Your privy members shall be cut off and your bowels taken out and boomed before you, your head severed from your body and your body divided into four quarters to be disposed of at the king's pleasure." End quote. And furthermore, the drawing portion of the execution primarily came first. This entailed the convict being tied up to a type of sleigh that's drawn or bumpily dragged behind a horse all the way from the prison to the gallows. And for a great many centuries, that journey was a full three miles from Newgate Prison in London to Tyburn. This was a remote locale outside of the city whose name became inextricably linked with public executions. And all the while while being dragged, the rabble-roused masses would pack the streets with uproarious jeers and heckles, 
likely throwing garbage at the poor fool as he prepared to die in one of the worst manners possible. For the next portion of the hanging and quartering, I will cite David Roos's piece for HowStuffWorks.com. I will list this article in the show notes. But as Roos explains, quote, Fans of The Princess Bride know that there's a big difference between being all dead and mostly dead. And so did medieval executioners. After being drawn to Tyburn, the condemned man was hung from a rope, from a gallows or just a very tall ladder, but not dropped the necessary distance to snap his neck. After a few terrifying minutes of near asphyxiation, the man was cut down while only mostly dead. But boy, did he wish he was all dead, because what came next was absolute madness. As the law dictated, his privy members were cut off first. That means his penis and testicles, and tossing them into a roaring fire. Next, his abdomen was split open from groin to sternum, and his intestines were pulled out. The final step of hanging, drawing, and quartering was to cut off the condemned man's head and then quarter his remaining corpse by carving it into four pieces. And according to the graphic medieval drawings, that basically meant cutting off the legs and arms. It is then noted that the severed limbs were parboiled in a blend of spices designed to preserve the flesh for as long as possible. That's because the dead man's body parts would next be taken on a publicity tour of sorts to let everyone know what happens to people who challenge the authority of the king. One of the main points of doing all this was to demonstrate the absolute power of the monarchy. Because there was no media or newspapers back then, the quartering could distribute the body parts to the surrounding towns as a warning." End quote. The Gunpowder Plotters' execution day was lined up for January of 1606. Enough time between the arrest and the execution for the king to make an example of them amongst his subjects and have their case proclaimed throughout the island. But Fox was miraculously able to escape his full sentence by sheer chance of ironic luck, if you can call it as such. On the day of his scheduled execution, Fox jumped from the gallows platform moments before the noose was placed on his neck, which caused him to fall awkwardly and break his own neck in the process. But regardless of his ability to cheat the hangman, his corpse was still ultimately quartered and sent to the literal four corners of the kingdom. That's right, they actually dispersed 25% of his body to the four farthest reaches within the British Isles for his crime. So with the treasonous terrorists publicly executed and their lesson fully propagandized into the peasantry, King James sought a calm after the storm. He didn't want his people waging a pogrom against the Catholics, so he made a speech to Parliament noting how these men were unique but that the overwhelming majority were loyal subjects to his rule. But the Crown did continuously remind people of the dishonorable conduct when they passed the Thanksgiving Act of 1606. This law required that every church in England deliver a special sermon on November 5th, the day that Parliament was supposed to be exploded, wherein they would collectively thank God for deliverance from the death and destruction of the gunpowder plot. And slowly over the centuries, 
those Thanksgiving days morphed into Guy Fawkes Day. So even in contemporary times, every November 5th is a celebrated occasion. Fireworks and bonfires, which represent the gunpowder and the potential explosion, mark the occasion, with straw effigies of Fox, called guys, being burned. So despite not being the leader, or even the brainchild of the attempted conspiracy attack on the government, Fox became the face of it. And he now enjoys eternal infamy for his crime. So much so, that even children in the year of 2022 will walk around asking for treats as they display their smiling, mustachioed mask of Guy Fox. Thank you for listening to this bite-sized bonus episode of Smoke-Filled Rooms. Be well, stay tuned, and happy Halloween. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We would like to be 100% crowdfunded, so we have created PayPal, Patreon, and crypto appreciation jars. They can be found at smokefilledrooms.net or on any of the Smokefilled Rooms social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Locals. Thank you in advance for your generous and much appreciated contribution. Smoke-Filled Rooms is a completely independent podcast that is created, written, hosted, produced, and engineered by me, Gregory Zink, and falls under the umbrella of Zink Publishing Incorporated. Additional voicing for the episodes is from the lovely Shari Maharaj. Cheers, and thank you again for listening.